Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. I'm Mike Pointer. Today's guest joins me to talk about a recent paper that re-examined some old work in a new light, in a story involving some big names in the world of population genetics. The first of these names is Robin Waples. Robin, thank you for coming on the podcast. Would you start by telling us a bit about yourself and the kinds of things that you like to work on? Yeah, my name is Robin Waples. I live in Seattle, Washington, USA. Uh, last fall, I retired after 35 years with NOAA Fisheries. That's our federal fisheries agency. But for a long time, I've also been an affiliate professor at School of Fisheries at University of Washington. And so I'm continuing to work on things that interest me through that affiliation. And my background is uh, in population genetics and conservation genetics. I work mostly on fish, but I also published on a wide range of other species. I do a fair bit of work on uh, evaluating methods for analyzing genetic and demographic data. So I do both empirical and theoretical work, and generally I'm interested in applying genetic and evolutionary methods to practical problems in conservation and management for real populations in nature. That's great. Thank you. You sound like your work sits squarely in the heredity remit. As you said, you do practical and theoretical work, and today we're talking about your new paper, which is a more theoretical one, and it's about NE. So what is NE, and what do we mean when we refer to the NE of a population? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a question I often get asked, even by people who should know quite a bit about it. It's a slippery concept. It's one of those things that is elegantly simple on the surface, but once you scratch below the surface, can get hideously complex. And after many decades working with the concept, I'm still finding new wrinkles. But at its basic level, affected population size is the evolutionary analog of census size. Census size often referred to as N. It's simply the number of individuals in a population. And the census size is relevant for ecological dynamics, uh, things like competition, predation, uh, disease, epidemiology, all of those things depend on the number of individuals in the population. But the evolutionary consequences of abundance, these are things like the rate of genetic drift, the rate of loss of genetic diversity, uh, the rate of increase of inbreeding, the effectiveness of natural selection, all of these depend not directly on the number of individuals, but on the effective population size, or NE. And so that's also why this concept is important, because it has real practical consequences for the evolutionary behavior of populations in nature. So all populations then can be characterized by at least two numbers, a census size N, and an effective size NE. And it's really important to understand both of them to have a richer understanding of the eco-evolutionary dynamics 
uh, that populations experience. You've drawn the distinction there between census population size and effective population size. So clearly there are situations in which they're not the same thing. So what differentiates N and NE? Yeah, so calculation of NE depends on the mean and variance and offspring number. So it's fairly simple to do in theory. In real populations, it can be very challenging to collect the data. But basically what you want to do is consider every individual in the population, write down how many offspring they produce. From that vector of offspring numbers, you have a mean and a variance. And that mean and variance then gets plugged in as simple equations to calculate effective population size. And in a simple case where each individual has an equal expectation of producing offspring, and the actual number of offspring then produced by each individual is just a random realization of a stochastic process. That's what's known as an ideal or right fisher population. Under those circumstances, on average, the variance in offspring number is going to equal the mean on average. So it's essentially a Poisson process. Under those special circumstances, the effective size and census size are the same. Okay, that's the trivial case. It feels like there's a big but coming. On the other hand, this situation of everybody totally equal in terms of expected reproductive success, it applies to essentially no populations in nature. In real populations, it's inevitably the case that some individuals are bigger, stronger, smarter, faster, or something that is going to give them a leg up compared to other individuals. So they have a competitive edge. So they are actually more likely to both survive and or reproduce offspring. So in those populations, you have, before you even start, you have an expectation that there's going to be differences in reproductive success. So when you, again, then have a random realization of the process of realizing those expected reproductive successes of all the individuals in the population, the total variance is going to be greater than it would be if all the expectations were the same. So in almost all real populations, the variance in offspring number is greater than the mean, and that causes the effective size to reduce compared to the census size. And in many cases, the reduction can be quite substantial. So that's the, another reason why it's important to understand both of these numbers. I think I'm with you. But as you say, these concepts can be quite slippery. So it can be helpful to think in terms of simple analogies. And you have one for this, right? For my way of thinking, the easiest way to really think about and maybe even grok effective population size is to think of it in terms of a lottery. That's a special kind of lottery. The participants in the lottery are the potential parents, the next generation. So you can think of a lottery as a fishbowl with the names of the potential parents in it. And if you have separate sexes, then you need to have separate fishbowls, one for males and one for females. And you need a separate draw to determine the parents of each offspring. Now, if 
you have a situation where every individual within each sex has exactly the same number of tickets in the lottery, then you've modeled exactly the right Fisher ideal population. Everybody's equal expectation of reproductive success. And just by chance, some names are going to get drawn more often than others. But on average, that's going to produce a variation in offspring number where the variance is about equal to the mean. And that produces a situation where effective size equals its census size. So in, in real populations, what happens is not all individuals are equal, or some individuals are more equal than others for reasons uh, we mentioned. So you can think of it as then some individuals have more tickets in the lottery, and they're going to be more likely to get picked. And the other important concept here in this process of doing the lottery and also reproduction is that the reproductive events are independent. So whoever's names you pick out for the first offspring, you put those names back in the hat or back in the fishbowl. And so whoever produced the last offspring, they still have an equal chance of producing the next offspring. It's like flipping a coin that, that whether it's tails or heads does not depend on whether it was heads or tails in the last iteration. So that's uh, randomness and independence are really important processes. So you can think of then effective size in terms of this lottery and the inequality in number of tickets in the lottery representing the disparities among individuals in the population in probabilities of producing offspring. Great. So now that we know what NE is, there are just a couple more things to understand before we get to your new paper. What are those? Yeah. So first of all, almost all population genetic theory was originally developed for discrete generations. These are species that are all born in a single cord. They grow up together, they mature, they reproduce at one time, and they produce offspring, and then they die. And so there are some species in the world that uh, follow that pattern. Uh, it's very easy to model in a computer. It's very tractable to model analytically with a pencil and paper. But in fact, the majority of species in the world uh, are age-structured, like humans, for example. We have some individuals being born every year, and some individuals die every year. If you have a stable population, the newborn individuals on average offset the ones that die. But at any given time, you have individuals of multiple ages that might be reproducing. And any given individual might reproduce quite a few times during its lifetime. So that's the situation of overlapping generations and a fair bit of population genetics theory has been modified to deal with overlapping generations, but it's a lot more complicated. The paper we're gonna talk about today from 1972 by Bill Hill is the most widely used method for calculating effective population size when generations overlap. And the way he does it, he follows a single cohort of individuals. The individuals are born all at the same time and you track their survival and reproduction throughout their whole life. And 
the offspring number you're interested in is not how many offspring they produce in any given year, but how many they produce across their entire lifetime. So that's lifetime reproductive success. And the variance in lifetime reproductive success is the key uncertainty in determining uh, affecting population size when generations overlap in Bill Hill's equation. So that's the first important thing. There is a modification for overlapping generations. The second important thing is that the situation I was interested in evaluating in this paper involved rather extreme reproductive scenarios in two ways. First of all, there's extreme reproductive variance among individuals of the same sex and age at any given time. So if you get it any given year, six-year-old males may have a mean expectation of producing, say, half an offspring in any given year, but their variance might be five or 10 times that mean, okay? And in this paper, I actually considered scenarios where the variance was 20 times the mean for each age and sex. So that's pretty extreme reproductive skew. The model had not been evaluated its robustness for those scenarios. And second, and even more important, was uh, evaluating the assumption of independence of survival and reproduction across time periods. Just like having random reproductive success, it's sort of the simplest model in evolutionary biology to model. Having independent reproduction and survival over time is the simple sort of default assumption. So if an individual turns out at one age to be average, above average, or below average for each age and sex in producing offspring, that has no effect under this independence assumption on whether it's likely to be above average, below average, or average in subsequent time periods. But again, in real populations, there are good reasons to believe and a lot of empirical evidence why uh, the, that independence assumption doesn't hold. Actually, the whole basis of evolution theory for the evolution of life histories is that there are trade-offs. So under that theory, then individuals have a certain amount of energy and it's not infinite, so it's limited. And they have to make decisions such as, should I reproduce now or should I delay and grow more so I can produce even more later? But if I reproduce now, that's using a lot of energy. I might die because I've used too much energy and I can't survive. Or I may not, the next year, I may not have enough energy left to reproduce. I may have to skip a year before I can reproduce again. Those sort of trade-offs then would imply often that you might get negative correlations between an individual's reproductive success at time one and time two or some other subsequent time period. In fact, empirically, there can also be the opposite. You can have positive correlations. That could happen, for example, naturally, if you have, let's say you get an individual that is both really robust and he's good at not only reproduction, but also good at survival. So that individual reproduces at a high rate. It also survives at a high rate. So it's more likely to be able to reproduce in subsequent time periods and amass higher lifetime reproductive success. That would lead to positive correlations in reproductive success over time. 
So the negative correlations tend to equalize reproductive success among the individuals in a cohort. So that reduces the variance in lifetime reproductive success and tends to increase effective size. If you have positive correlations over time, that means that's sort of like capitalism. It's sort of like the rich get richer. You know, the ones that reproduce the most in one time period are the most likely ones to reproduce in subsequent time periods. So they just keep amassing more and more reproductive success. That increases the disparity in lifetime reproductive success among individuals in a cohort. That increases the variance in lifetime reproductive success and reduces effective size. That was great. Really good, clear explanation. But just let me recap to make sure I'm still with you. There's this fantastic equation derived by Bill Hill in the 70s that people use to calculate effective population size for natural populations that don't conform to this simple discrete generation scenario. But it's also a feature of natural populations that you get some individuals that reproduce a lot more than other individuals. That's your reproductive skew. And also, you're likely to see either trade-offs or consistently particularly fit individuals leading to positive or negative correlation in offspring number across time. So you wanted to see whether the equation still gives accurate results under all these conditions. So Bill Hill's model had been evaluated for some just moderate degrees of reproductive skew and to my knowledge, it had not been evaluated under scenarios where there were positive or negative correlations in reproductive success over time. So that was kind of a missing link for uh, application of this model to evolutionary biology. How did you know how extreme to go with your skew and correlation? There was actually a practical reason a specific practical reason why I was interested in this problem. Uh, some years ago, some colleagues contacted me who work on racehorses. So uh, they had genetic data for some of the samples, but I looked at this scenario and I said, what you really need to do is get the pedigree. And they did, they got the pedigree. So now we have like a 50 year pedigree of mother and father your sire and dam for all of the foals born since 1970. So from that, for each cohort, each year from 1970, you have a new cohort born and you can follow their, all of the offspring they produce across their entire lifetime. And you have to go through 1990 or so because they can live 30 years. And so you have about 20 cohorts where we could calculate lifetime variance in reproductive success. And these species, reproduction is not natural by any means. It's almost entirely by artificial insemination now. So humans decide who gets to reproduce. And they, the decisions are often made by past performance of the parents in raising. So what happens is, the females are restricted. They can only produce basically zero or one offspring per year. But the males, the number is essentially unlimited with uh, artificial insemination. And in practical terms, in this pedigree, on the average year, 
the, the stallion that produced the most offspring, was, it was over 100 in a, a typical year, whereas the vast majority of the stallions in the whole breed produced zero. And if you and furthermore, there were very strong positive correlations of reproduction across time. So the same individuals, same males got picked year after year after year to be the main breeders to such a degree that across an entire cohort, the major stud on average would produce something like a thousand offspring. Whereas the average for a stable population is two. So you have this enormous disparity in this pedigree. And so I was interested in, well, this is really extreme scenarios of reproductive uh, variance. Will Bill Hill's model work? Will it reliably predict the rate of genetic drift in the population, effective population size and the rate of genetic drift under these extreme scenarios? So that was the question I would try to answer in this paper. Ah, that's fascinating. And you did say that your theoretical work was always motivated by real data. And there you go. So you can imagine natural systems where this is also relevant, right? Like under mating systems where males monopolize females, for example. Have you chosen the racehorses as a case study because you think they represent a very extreme case? So if the equation can cope with this, then it can cope with anything. Yes. Yeah. So there are there are situations like that where you have harems and you have like an elephant seal, male elephant seal will dominate a harem of females. So you can get some pretty substantial disparities there. But in nature, in most of those cases, a male has to expend enormous amounts of energy to maintain that territory, fighting other males, keeping them away. So in most cases, the males don't remain dominant throughout their whole lifespan. So there may be a peak of a few years where individual male is really dominant. Before that, he's just a wimp and he's on the edge of the harem. After that, he's over the hill and again, sort of shunted to the edge. He's worn out or maybe even dead from all the energy he's expended maintaining the territories and mating for a few years. So you can get that sort of dynamics, but in the horses, I mean, they were pampered, you know, if they were a big race horse winner when they were young, they undoubtedly get pampered treatment and they maintain their ability to produce offspring artificially as long as possible, artificially by humans. And possibly even beyond their lifespan. I can easily imagine that this valuable sperm is being frozen. In theory, that's possible. In, uh, in practice, I'm not sure that's the case. With uh, I looked at the ages of all the males. None of the males in the data set are over 30 years old. So uh, there's a pretty dramatic drop-off in reproductive output after about age 20. So if that's occurring... I expect right now it's it's fairly minor, and perhaps there are even rules within the, the 
association about that sort of thing? I, I don't know the answer, but that's an interesting question. Um, I will ask the people who should know the answer. In theory, it should be possible with frozen sperm. Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. I just got really taken by the idea of genetically immortal horses. So you're using the horse data to inspire scenarios in your simulations. I looked at scenarios where all the reproduction each year was random and there were no correlations in the survival and reproduction over time, except by chance. So the individuals that were more likely to produce offspring in one year weren't any more likely to produce offspring the next year. So that was sort of a reference point. And then I created uh, scenarios where there were moderate and really strong reproductive skew. So the variance within each age, the variance was either five times the mean or 20 times the mean. 20 times the mean, really pretty substantial over-dispersed variance. And that that is more or less comparable to what occurred in the data set for the male horses. And uh, then I introduced either strong, very strong positive or negative correlations in reproductive success over time. And I did that by first generating a vector of offspring numbers just randomly. And for example, if you have the situation where there's high reproductive skew variance 20 times the mean, if you use say the negative binomial distribution to generate that, you can specify on I want a vector of numbers where the variance is 20 times the mean and give me 100 numbers like that. So you get that number. And then if you sort those, so the highest numbers are all at one end, and then most of the rest are zeros. And then you, every year, you assign the highest numbers to the same individuals. Then you've generated these very positive correlations in reproductive success over time. And furthermore, uh, each year you had to decide which individuals died under the base random case, that would be totally random. Under the positive correlation, it would be the individuals that didn't produce any offspring that were the ones that died, whereas the ones that, say, had low ID numbers and they're the ones who got all the offspring, they were also the most likely to survive. So not only were these individuals more likely to produce more offspring every year, they're more likely to survive and have more opportunities to produce offspring. So this simple trick uh, allowed me to generate really strong positive or negative correlations. How did you use the simulated data to test the robustness of the any equation? For each scenario, I ran each one for 500 years. So this is quite a few generations. There was a burn-in period to let the age structure effects equilibrate. And I then tracked several hundred SNP genes, say decline in heterozygosity and increase in allele frequency variance. Those are two ways of measuring genetic drift. So I tracked the rate at which heterozygosity declined over time and the rate at which the variation in allele frequency among the loci increased over time. And then I calculated the lifetime variance in reproductive success from the pedigree that I kept track of. And from the lifetime reproductive success variance using Bill's formula, 
you can calculate and say, okay, that's what effective population size should be. And it actually reliably predicted the rate of genetic drift in the population, both in terms of heterozygosity loss and in terms of allele frequency variance, even under the most extreme scenarios that I implemented. And these were extreme enough that they're, except when you're in a situation with resources where humans are really intervening, it's kind of hard to imagine natural populations that have more extreme reproductive scenarios than the ones I modeled. Perfect. So then what's the upshot of this result? It's good news for researchers because it means this method really can be reliably used for a wide range of applications in nature. And it has been uh, over the years. It's just that, uh, to my knowledge, nobody had really tested it. It's sort of like maybe stress tests for banks, you know, that create conditions that are very unfavorable, very unusual, and see if they fall apart or, uh, or they still function as they should. And Bill Hill's model functioned as advertised under these extreme stress tests. And that original paper was 1972, so 50 years and still going strong. To finish up, would you just remind us of the title of the paper? And I know you're the sole author, but give a mention to anybody else who deserves one. Yeah, so the title is Robustness of Hill's Overlapping Generation Method for Calculating NE to Extreme Patterns of Reproductive Success. Um, so you're right, I am the sole author, but there are other important people to acknowledge. One is Joe Felsenstein, who's been at the University of Washington here uh, for longer than I've been in Seattle. But uh, Joe in 1971 had a, also a very influential paper on effective size with generational overlap and made some limiting assumptions. So in, in many ways, Bill's model is more general. He relaxed some of those assumptions, so that was an improvement. So in discussing all of these issues, unfortunately, Bill Hill isn't around anymore. Over the years, in many cases, I corresponded with Bill Hill and met him a few times. He was always very generous with his time and uh, explaining and discussing some of the old pop gen literature. And Joe Felsenstein is uh, very similar. And he's local too. So many times over the years since I've been in Seattle, I've gone over and talked to Joe about issues that get as far as I can in understanding something. He has an encyclopedic knowledge and understanding of pop gen literature. So he's helped me countless times, including in this paper. And finally, I'd like to give a shout out to one of the reviewers who actually pointed out for my consideration an issue with the first submitted draft. The first submitted draft I had, the title was something like the same, but the robustness to extreme violations of model assumptions. Because I knew that Joe's model from 1971 had assumed that these correlations across time of individual reproductive success were only random and not, not systematic. And somehow I had it fixed in my mind that Bill Hill's 
model made the same assumptions. And so for some reason, I did not go back and check that before I wrote this paper. And this reviewer just flagged it and said, I had a quick look at these papers and I don't see where he mentions this assumption. So I went back in detail and read both his 72 and 79 paper. And in fact, he does not make those assumptions. It, his model does not require those assumptions. In the first paper in 72, he does a worked example where he makes those assumptions just to make it tractable so we get an analytical result. So I guess it must have been that that it, my mind had seized upon. But um, I really have, had to thank that reviewer for bringing this to my attention because it could have produced a unfortunate result for the, I mean, the actual result would still be true, the robustness of the model, but it, it wouldn't be extreme violations of model assumptions. That was the part that had to change. So all the results remain the same. But then I, um, after I'd done that, I contacted the authors to see if uh, they would, uh, if this reviewer would agree to be acknowledged by name. And he did. And it's Perrick Jorde from Norway. So he, uh, I talked with him. I know him well. Uh, he's published uh, quite important papers on effective size in the past. And so he was an ideal person to review it. He did say he spent a lot of time reviewing the paper. And I'm really glad he did because he made an important contribution. Sounds like a great experience. Thank you for coming on, Robin. That was Robin Waples. Effective population size is something we think about all the time, and it's easy to take for granted both the concept and the methods we use for calculating it. It's really interesting to think about these common concepts more deeply, and reassuring to know that the methods can stand up to our best efforts to undermine them. I was enjoying that interview so much that it ran a bit long, so I'm going to leave it there for today. After the usual reminders that Robin's paper is on the Heredity website, which is nature.com forward slash hdy. And while you're there, you can also check out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, just send an email to hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm Mike Pointer. Thanks for listening.